You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Buckeye seems to have re-engineered some of Uncle Sam's cyber tools, and apparently they did it without help from the shadow brokers. More on airstrikes as retaliation for hacking with some thoughts on electronic warfare. Notes on malicious commitment as one of the hazards of open source software development. How big is the dark web? Big enough, but maybe not as big as everyone thinks. And beware of bogus Avengers Endgame sites. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, May 7, 2019. Researchers at security firm Symantec have concluded that the Buckeye Group has obtained Equation Group cyber attack tools and used them against a variety of targets, including several U.S. allies. The Equation Group, of course, is generally alleged to be the U.S. NSA. Symantec doesn't call Buckeye Chinese intelligence services but comes as close to everybody else does as to make no difference. The tool's use apparently antedates the shadow broker's leaks by about a year, and Symantec thinks, the New York Times reports, that the code was captured and reverse-engineered when it was employed against Chinese networks. The Times compares it to a gunslinger's grabbing the other gunslinger's peacemaker during a showdown and then blasting back with it. The other possibilities, that the attack code was found inadvertently exposed on a poorly secured server that it was obtained by hacking, or that it was delivered by a rogue insider, are thought to be significantly less likely. Specifically, what Buckeye got was the double pulsar backdoor and the BEMSTAR installation tool. It did not use them against U.S. targets, either because Buckeye assumes the Americans would be wise to their own exploits, or because they wish to avoid tipping their hand to Fort Meade. Instead, the threat actor targeted, as far as known, scientific research organizations and educational institutions in Belgium, Luxembourg, Vietnam, the Philippines, and Hong Kong. In at least one case, government networks were also attacked. Buckeye is also known as APT3, or, our personal favorite, Gothic Panda, and it's generally held to be a contractor in Guangzhou, working for China's Ministry of State Security. The company is the Guangzhou Boyu Information Technology Company Limited but it's also known as Boyusek. You may have heard of them. They're the employers of the three gentlemen the U.S. Justice Department indicted in November 2017 
on charges of computer hacking, theft of trade secrets, conspiracy and identity theft directed at U.S. and foreign employees, and computers on three corporate victims in the financial, engineering, and technology industries between 2011 and May 2017. They're out of the reach of U.S. law for now, unless and until they decide to vacation in some extradition-friendly vacation destination. We hear Vancouver is lovely this time of year, but the indictment seems to have made Boyasek pull in its contractor's horns a bit. In any case, as several have observed, Boyasek went quiet after the Justice Department went noisy. And therein lies maybe another tale— as Symantec pointed out, if Boyusek is maybe out of the business, then who's using the tools? Because they've been used since Boyusek dropped off the radar. Have they come quietly back, or have they given the tools to someone else? As a Symantec researcher put it, people come and go, the tools live on. Observers are drawing several lessons from the incident. First, it seems that cyber attack tools are less easy to contain, more susceptible to proliferation, than are other tools of statecraft. Second, many would really like intelligence services to do a better job of securing their tools. Third, cyber attack code seems inherently backward striking, and capable reverse engineering makes this even more likely to be a risk. And finally, some are calling for another review of the U.S. vulnerability equities process, which decides which zero days to report for patching and which to hold on to for use against the opposition. The Advanced Cybersecurity Center, or ACSC, is a member-driven nonprofit whose mission is to strengthen cyber defenses, develop security talent, and advocate for well-informed public policy. They recently published a report outlining how boards should be active governance partners in collaborative cyber defense. Michael Figueroa is executive director of ACSC. The report itself has a number of sort of findings, but as a, a security executive, I really kind of honed in on two uh, primary key points. And uh, the first point is really, really from the board perspective. Rather than try to become security experts or bring in one director to serve as the security expert, I think what we found is boards should really support their CISOs by holding the whole leadership team responsible for assessing cyber risks against business risks. So, I, you know, that that's really looking at it from that board responsibility-oriented perspective. But, of course, I wouldn't say that the security executives are without responsibility either. In order to for the board to really be effective at that, I think security executives that are most effective at building constructive board relationships uh, – are the ones who are able to get out of the technical weeds and seek to build leadership coalitions across the organization on mitigating cyber risks, comparing cyber risks to business risks. So it's really a sort of two-pronged approach that then the report digs into some of the key findings, experiences, and techniques for how uh, the organizations can um, improve those communications. So as you see it, I mean, to what degree... Uh, is it a board member's responsibility to educate themselves on cyber issues? You know, it's been a really, really um, long sort of conversation lately. Uh, I think that the security community will generally say that board members need to be more educated in security. But I, I would say that's, uh, based on our findings, that's really not the right direction because it's not the board's responsibility 
to dictate how the security program should be executed. It's really the board's responsibility to be able to help the organization and the leadership make strategic decisions based on their governance function. So to do that, I think it's a much easier path to go for the board to be able to leverage its understanding of business governance and require the leadership team to really partner with the security executives to understand how cyber risks affect their areas of business so that the board can then make better strategic decisions without some idealistic overlay of what a security-informed board member should be. What we're finding CISOs are getting locked up in is they're trying, they're reporting on metrics as they understand security and then are forced to spend a much of their limited time in front of the board trying to explain what those metrics mean. I, I think it, it would be much more effective and what the report is sort of showing us is more effective for the CISOs to align their measurements against the performance of the business and then engage in that board level conversation so that then they can um, seek the resources that they need to really mitigate the business risks versus try and hone in on specific cyber risks. We're in a transition stage, what I've been seeing right now, where the older generation of CISOs, or let's say the more seasoned generation of CISOs, are CISOs who inherited their position at large enterprises, for example, because they've been at the enterprise for a long time and they're starting to retire out. That's opening up a new pool of CISOs to uh, really start standing up into those larger enterprise-oriented positions. And what's happening there is that the first generation of CISOs were very, very business-oriented and sort of learned security through the process of the evolution of the organization versus newer CISOs that tend to be much more technically sound and technically oriented, but are much more comfortable in the technical side of security versus the business side of security. So those that are being most successful are the ones who are able to effectively translate their technical knowledge to a business-oriented audience versus those that want to dive into the weeds and uh, support their teams but aren't able to really engage in building those partnerships at the business leadership levels. That's Michael Figueroa. He's the executive director of the Advanced Cybersecurity Center. The report is titled Leveraging Board Governance for Cybersecurity. You can find it on their website. Israel's airstrike against a Hamas cyber operations center continues to be seen by many as a radical shift in the nature of combat. The future is here and it features hackers getting bombed, as foreign policy puts it. Wired's more nuanced discussion sees the novelty in the near-real-time retaliation and its public avowal by the Israeli government. What the hackers were engaged in doing is unknown, not having been part of that public discussion. But consider that as cyber operations and electronic warfare converge, whether the Gaza strike might be more like hitting an enemy jammer than something altogether new under the sun. Not all retaliation, of course, is kinetic. Sometimes you jam the enemy emitter and sometimes even a private company can do it. Facebook just did so this week, taking down 97 groups, pages, and accounts in an action against Russian coordinated inauthenticity deployed against Ukraine. Finding and stopping inauthenticity continues to seem like a better and easier bet than direct content moderation. And sometimes you'll even leave the emitter alone because it's doing the opposition more harm than good. Perhaps it's telling its people what you would prefer they heard, 
Sometimes it broadcasts nonsense, unintentionally darkening counsel with waylord folly. Sometimes it's a self-jamming platform, some colonel or master sergeant who just loves, loves, loves to send their voice and the thoughts that voice carries out across the ether to the exclusion of all other communication. And sometimes what you're collecting from a given emitter might just be more valuable than what the opposition's doing with it. We continue the CyberWire's coverage of the inaugural Global Cyber Innovation Summit in Baltimore last week. Among the discussions came a warning about the supply chain. It may be wise to assume hardware's compromised, and as for software, the industry as a whole hasn't come to grips with the implications of the very widespread use of open-source code. What of the problem of the malicious committer? Security industry leaders and venture capitalists closely engaged with them shared some thoughts. A great deal of this is open-source, and increasingly producers of open-source software have little or no relation to the software's consumers. With 80 to 90% of any given software product being written by unknown people with equally unknown skills, qualifications, and motivations, one of the panels said, we now face the problem of the malicious committer. Sonatype executive Wayne Jackson warned, working your way into a project and introducing coding errors is pretty trivial. Recorded Future takes a demystifying look at the dark web. What is the dark web, you might ask? Recorded Future's simple definition is as good as any. It's any worldwide web content that requires specific software, configurations, or authorization to access. The Tor network is a part of the dark web that many will be familiar with. What Recorded Future found is that there's a lot less to the dark web than the familiar iceberg metaphor would suggest. It's not that 90% of the internet is down there invisibly submerged in the dark web. In fact, it's just the opposite. About 90% of online stuff is up on top, visible to all. Alas, we might say, all too visible. In Recorded Future's infographic, there's plenty of room for the happy whale in their illustration to pass beneath the iceberg without so much as a loss of a barnacle. So there's bad stuff out there in the dark web, but only around 100 or so sites are doing bad things like hawking contraband. And finally, we fear this is another dog bites man story, but apparently it needs to be told again. Sites promising pirated downloads of movies, television programs, songs, and so forth are bad mojo. In fact, don't tell Thanos, but there's a sketchy Avengers Endgame site out there that promises downloads of the movie. It should be unnecessary to say this, but apparently it's not. The site is not an official Marvel one, and unsurprisingly, it's actually involved in credential harvesting. Giving up your credentials is like giving up the Time Stone to someone other than Doctor Strange or the Ancient One. Don't go there. You don't want to get dusted. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. 
So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by David DeFore. He's the Vice President of Engineering and Cybersecurity at WebRoot. David, it's great to have you back. Um, we wanted to talk today about HTTPS and uh, some safety information you wanted to share about that. Yes. So uh, always good to be here, David. Thank you for having me back. Um, you know, let's talk a little about, a bit about HTTP and HTTPS. And, you know, I think most folks are familiar now that HTTP is basically an open connection and people can see network traffic and information going back and forth. And they've learned to look for that HTTPS, which means it's secure. And the little lock that, that says, hey, my, my connection is secure. And, and, you know, you feel good about that, right? David? Right. Sure. Well, there's some concerns here. Um, one of them uh, is that with HTTPS, many of the common techniques for monitoring where you're going on the internet to make sure you're not landing on malicious websites can't read that secure traffic, which mm. makes sense. The reason you want an HTTPS connection is you don't want anyone seeing your traffic. But that that same uh, security is blocking a lot of the tools that exist today that would prevent you from from going places you shouldn't go. So there's a concern there. Uh, uh, sort of a, a natural tension there. Correct. And, and obviously the question becomes, am I more concerned about my privacy or am I more concerned about where I'm browsing on the internet? Because, uh, you know, some of your folks might be wondering, um, well, aren't all HTTPS sites um, secure and safe? Well, all... <laughs> They're not. HTTPS, what it is doing is basically making sure the communication between your browser and the website on the other end is encrypted. It makes no determination if the website on the other end is a malicious website or not. It's just as easy for somebody setting up a malicious website to register and get a certificate to make that secure connection as it is for a legitimate business to do it. Now, you all have been tracking some examples of this. Wasn't there a recent... Uh phishing campaign involving uh, some folks faking some Facebook logins? Yeah, so we, we do see a lot of, not just with Facebook, but, but you're absolutely right with Facebook, where people will set up these HTTPS sites, they look legitimate, they look like Facebook, they look uh, secure because you have the lock, but you're actually not on a legitimate Facebook site or you know some other site, and, and it, it really makes it more difficult to to make a determination um, because you're, we've all been taught, look for the lock, make sure that the URL looks good, and you're, in fact, on a malicious site. Isn't some of that changing? Aren't some of the, the browser uh, 
suppliers are going to be adjusting how some of those look on the page, trying to get away from that lock being a, a symbol of security? Well, they are starting to to figure out how they can make that determination that 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 isn't the only sense of security, but but it's not going to be holistic or exactly um, uh, definitive on on how that's going to play out um, in the marketplace. So I, you know, if you're using HTTPS, which you should be, we're not sitting here on this podcast today, David, saying you shouldn't use it. Mm-hmm. Uh, just you've got to be aware of where you're going, and just don't make the the assumption that the site you're on is is good. Yeah, don't let it give you a false sense of security. That's exactly right. And and again, th- you should be looking at things that that protect you at the network layer, not uh, not just on the endpoint, but things that are monitoring your DNS to make sure you're not being routed to malicious sites, and 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 make sure the certificates have good reputation. Which all your folks are wondering, how do I do that? Again, that's looking at the lock and making sure it's green. But don't just trust it because your lock is green, you're good. Yeah, because those security certificates aren't so hard to get. Correct. All right. Well, David DeFore, thanks for joining us. Hey, it's been great being here, David. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to share your feedback now. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. 
Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. 